Well, good morning, dear TDBC brothers and sisters. I count it a privilege to be standing before you, and I really wish that I could see your faces, but I am thankful that we have this means of communication that can bridge the gap between continents. I bring you loving greetings from my family. We miss you, and we are praying for you during this time of upheaval. If the Lord wills, we will see each other soon. Before I give an introduction to the book, I would like to first read these uh, three verses which I have been assigned, and that is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the first three verses of the book. Now these are amazing verses about the supremacy of the Son. Please, just try and listen and let the Word sink into your heart and mind, and let's invite the Spirit of Truth to be our teacher, and may the glorious Son of God be exalted by these verses as we appropriate them together. So let's read that. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God's Word says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Let's pray. O oh, Father, what can we say? These words are too high for us. They are too glorious for us to comprehend. How can we even begin to tell of the majesty and the glory of your only begotten Son? Our words are insufficient, but your word is eternal. Lord, you have spoken to us. You breathed out the incarnate word. You spoke your final word. Your worthy Son embodies the greatest revelation ever given to mankind, and we bow before him now the living word. He is greater. He is the greatest. And may this revelation of his, of your son, change us into people who are worthy to be called by your name. Help us to pay attention to what he has to say this morning. And we ask this in the holy name of your dear son. Amen. Now right at the outset of this sermon, I want to give credit where credit is due. Many of the ideas that and statements in this sermon I have gleaned from different commentaries. They are not original with me. But let's look at the book of Hebrews. Let's do a little introduction about this book. What sort of a book is Hebrews? Although often it is called an epistle or letter, it lacks the usual introduction and greeting at the beginning. However, it does end like an epistle with a section of exhortations, a benediction, and some final greetings. But the bulk of the letter consists of systematic teaching very similar to a sermon which is in interspersed with warning passages. The author himself summarizes his message in chapter 13 verse 22 as a word of exhortation. So that is what he saw himself as writing in this, in this letter. And based on these different characteristics, I think it is fitting to call this book of Hebrews a sermonic letter because it incorporates some things that are similar to a sermon and others that are similar to a letter. 
Now, who is the author? I was advised not to take a long time on this section, so I won't. The answer is, of course, we don't know. Only God knows. But in spite of this, the fact that we don't even know who the author is, the letter's Christological rich, richness and spiritual depth caused it to be included in the canon of Scripture. Now, when was this written? When was Hebrews written? Most scholars believe it was written sometime between 64 and 68 A.D., uh, definitely prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Who were the recipients? The earliest title of this book simply says, To Hebrews. To Hebrews. But to which Hebrews? And where were they living? This is a little more difficult to determine with any certainty. Some scholars have said that they were Hebrews living in Jerusalem or Palestine. Other scholars say the recipients were living in Rome or Italy. Why was the letter written? The letter was written because this group of Jewish believers were beginning to experience persecution as a result of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Some scholars say this was the beginning of Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. Others say that these Hebrew Christians were suffering at the hands of their Jewish countrymen in Palestine. In either case, the hard times that had come upon these Hebrew disciples were causing some of them to consider returning to Judaism. We often forget the tremendous struggle involved in leaving one religious system for another. These Jews had been raised in Judaism. That was all they had known. And familiarity brings comfort and security. Also, returning to the well-established and state-recognized Jewish religion would have minimized their suffering. It would have made sense for them to reason that Judaism, unlike pagan religions, was actually established by the one true God. I mean, didn't the Lord God make a covenant with Israel at Sinai? Was not his law given to Moses and mediated by angels? And did not the prophets of old speak to our fathers? And did Yahweh not command the building of a tabernacle and establish the Levitical priesthood with all its ceremonies and sacrifices? Yes, he did. What harm then could there be in returning to the ancient religion that Yahweh himself had established? So the author of Hebrews answers this question that was in the minds of his readers. And he said this, he said, there is nothing to gain and everything to lose in turning back to Judaism. In doing so, he says, they would be cutting themselves off from God's latest, greatest, and permanent revelation, his son. And he tells us in this book, and he tells them in this book, that the son is superior in every way in both his person and his work, to all that came before. So they must not turn back. A few last notes on the book as a whole before we move into the text. Hebrews is a book of contrasts. The author loves to contrast things, and he mainly contrasts Christ and his work with persons and characteristics under the Old Covenant. And he delights to show that God's Son is better in every way. In fact, the word better is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. And this book proves to us that Christ's priestly work is perfect and eternal. And the word perfect is used 14 times and eternal is used at least 9 times. This letter is also immensely practical. Practical for you and I. It urges us to examine ourselves. 
It warns us to never be stagnant in the Christian life, but to press on to better things. It calls us to imitate Christ in our suffering and to imitate men and women of faith who have gone before. And it also reminds us to have, always have, a heavenly and eternal perspective. The book begins with one long and beautifully crafted sentence, which ends in verse 4. Now just to give you a road map of where we are going, verses 1 and 2a contain four contrasts, which we will look at. Then in verses 2b and 3, we have seven beautiful descriptions of God the Son. And these three verses convincingly prove the deity of the Son and also his superiority to the prophets. The Greek text begins with the words, at many times and in many ways. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers, to the fathers by the prophets, and right away we are faced with the theme of Revelation. What is Revelation in a biblical context? Revelation is God's self-disclosure. You know, God is not obligated to tell us anything about Himself. But because He desires relationship with mankind, He has chosen to communicate with us. And the very fact that God speaks to man is evidence of His amazing grace to us. Now the writer tells us that God's communication with man began long ago, at many times and in many ways. This teaches us that in the Old Testament, God's revelation was intermittent and also varied. In other words, there were specific periods where God spoke and there were periods of silence. He doled out His revelation in portions, each building on and adding to that which had come before. And we call this progressive revelation. Also the means which God used changed. Sometimes he spoke through dreams, sometimes by visions, sometimes by audible voice, and sometimes by angels. We read, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The fathers and the prophets were the reference point for any theological discussion for the Jewish community. Because God had spoken to his chosen people through special messengers called prophets. And these men not only spoke God's message, they also wrote it down, preserving it for future generations. And in this verse, the authenticity and authority of the Old Testament is affirmed. Let's look at verse 2a. It says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. And I said there are four contrasts here. And their purpose is to demonstrate the superiority of God's revelation in His Son. The first contrast is between long ago and in these last days. The Bible calls the age we are living in the last days. Why? This is because God's story is nearly done. His revelation to man long ago was merely preparation for the unveiling of God's conclusion. And there really remains little to do before the end, biblically speaking. These are the last days in which our Sovereign Lord is bringing everything to a close. Now the second contrast is God spoke to our fathers versus He has spoken to us. Wow! This brings God's revelation close. 
It's not God speaking to some other people somewhere out there at some other time. No. God has spoken to us. He is talking to you and me. We better pay, pay close attention. The third contrast. God spoke by the prophets versus he has spoken to us by his son. Under the old covenant, God chose special men to be his instruments of communication. But in these last days, he has sent his own son. And we will unpack more of what that, this means later. The fourth contrast is only implied, it's not overtly state, stated. It's between at many times and in many ways versus in one final, complete and perfect way. You see, one of the main points that the author of Hebrews is making here is that under the Old Covenant, God's communication was intermittent, partial, and incomplete. But now, in these last days, through the Son, He has given us His final, perfect, and complete revelation. We may ask, how can God's final revelation be the Son? Because He fulfills all that was spoken before. He is the necessary conclusion to the story of God's redemption. All that God communicated before was only leading up to the greatest revelation that God had for mankind. The Word incarnate is the completion of God's narrative of salvation. The Son is the living Word. Prophets were messengers who spoke God's Word. But the Son is the Word made flesh. The Word, Emmanuel, the Word dwelling among us. What greater self-disclosure can there be than that? In these last days, God has sent not a message. He has sent Himself as a man. Now we come to seven glorious statements about the person of God's Son. Who is He? Who are we talking about? We have already seen that, God, that He is God's greatest and final revelation. But how can that be? Why is He so special? How is He superior to the prophets of old? In these seven statements we will find out that the Son is the fullest, most complete revelation of God that we have because He shares the Father's divine nature. It's because He's divine. It's because He is fully God. That is why He can be the most complete revelation to us in these last days. So let's go through them. Number one, it says, Whom He appointed the heir of all things. Now humanly speaking, who has the right to inherit possessions, the possessions and wealth of a father? His Son. And God the Father has made His only begotten Son to be heir of everything that exists. The riches and fullness of the earth. But not only that, all mankind made in the image of God is an inheritance. But not only that, the planets, the stars, the galaxies. But not only that, all angelic beings belong to the Son, who is heir of all things. Number two, second statement concerning the Son. It says, through whom he created the world. Through whom also he created the world. All things belong to the Son, not only by right of inheritance, but also by His right as Creator. The word that is here translated world is actually the word for the ages. He has created the ages. 
So we see here that the Son of God not only created the world, He also scheduled the ages and ordained the times. Now the Bible teaches that God spoke the world into existence. And we know from the first chapter of the Gospel of John that the Son was that powerful creative word that came from the mouth of Yahweh and formed all things out of nothing. The Apostle John says, The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Have you ever pondered this thought? The Son created you. He is your Maker. The third statement concerning the, the Son of God. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. What a beautiful statement. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And just like the sun in our solar system releases immeasurable amounts of light, energy, and heat, even so the Son of God radiates the light, energy, and glory of God. He is the outshining of all God's attributes and character, making Him equal and one with the Father. The Son can therefore reveal to us God perfectly because He is the radiance of God's glory. Number four, the fourth statement concerning the Son. It says, and the exact imprint of His nature. Now if I, if I were to place my thumb on an ink pad and then firmly press it on a white sheet of paper, what would I get? I would get the exact imprint of my thumb, wouldn't I? This phrase that we read here teaches us about the Trinity. The Son is equal to and identical to the Father in all His qualities and attributes. Yet, the Son remains separate, a separate person from the Father. So we see here that the Son is the perfect representation of God's nature. The Son and the Father are of the same divine essence. And only Jesus could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's from John 14, 9. How is that for superior revelation? He is of the same divine essence as the Father. Number five, the fifth statement concerning the Son. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Son is not only creator of the universe, He is also its sustainer. And the power to create is also the power to preserve, the power to control, and the power to bring to an end. Hebrews tells us the Son possesses this kind of power. All the Son would have to do is say the word, and the universe would disintegrate, collapse upon itself, cease to exist. How does the Son sustain the universe? By His spoken word. Now that is power. The sixth statement about the Son. It says, After making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. Purification calls to mind the work of a priest. How can it be that the eternal transcendent Son is also a priest? The author will explain the Son's priestly work in detail later. But for now, we can gather this much. The sins that he speaks of 
are yours and mine. But the work of purifying is His. And we also know that the work of purifying is done. He said, it says, after making purification. Later in this epistle, we read, He has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9.26 He came to put an end to sin by making purification. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. All I can say is, Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. The seventh statement, the final statement concerning the Son, and what a fitting end to this uh, exalting passage, this passage that exalts the Son. It says, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's important to notice that this phrase is closely tied with, to the previous one. He sat down is significant because under the Old Covenant, the priests were not supposed to sit down while performing their temple duties. This is because their job was never done. But God's priestly son sat down at his right hand because the purification for sin that he accomplished was once for all and eternal. His cleansing work is finished. He sat down next to God the Father. But also the significance of him sitting down next to the Father is that he is exalted to the highest place in heaven as ruler king and judge. He has been given the greatest place of honor because he washed our sins away and made us clean before God. In these seven statements concerning the Son, we have gone from creation to Calvary to glory. We have tasted and seen the sevenfold supremacy of the Son. He is inheritor, creator, radiator of God's glory, representer of His nature, sustainer of the world, purifier of our sins, and ruler over all. When we consider these wonderful attributes together, the prophets pale in comparison, and we can only agree with God's word that the Son is God's greatest revelation to man. What does this all mean for us today? These are uncertain times. Death is more real to us than ever. What we need is an unshakable and firm foundation to build our lives upon. And that sure foundation, my friend, is found in a relationship with God. How can you know God? You already have all you need to know God and have a relationship with Him through the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory. God has spoken and still speaks to you through His beloved Son. Jesus came to reveal to you and me the way to the Father because He is the way, the truth, and the life. However, if your sins have not been purified or cleansed by the purifier, then you cannot know God. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. 
But the good news is that the sun is the sin purifier. The sun is God's message of love to you. He came not to condemn you for your sins. Instead, he came that you might be saved through him. What must you do to be saved from judgment? You must believe that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. Only by trusting in the Son can you come to know the Father. And when you trust him, he will purify you and give you eternal life. If you have not done this, I sincerely pray that you will do this today. Don't wait for tomorrow, my friend. Tomorrow may be too late. What about those of us who have already trusted in God's Son? I believe we should respond in three ways. Number one, listen to Him and obey. That is, listen to the Son and obey. Trust in His sufficiency. And number three, worship Him. First of all, listen to Him and obey. If the Son is God's final and perfect Word, we must listen to Him. He is our Creator, our Master, our King. We must obey Him in everything, even during these difficult times. Number two, trust in His sufficiency. No matter what you are going through, remember, God's Son is greater. He is all-sufficient because he is the Almighty God. If He upholds the universe by the word of His power, then you and I can surely trust Him to take care of our lives. Do you have financial needs that are too great for you and cause you to worry? My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Are you afraid of sickness and death? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When the Son of God rose from the grave, He triumphed over death and made it a doorway through which we pass into His glorious presence. God's Son is able to keep you and provide for you, and one day He will take you to be with Him. Number three, worship Him. Worship the Son. Is He worthy? Yes, He is. There is none other who deserves honor and glory and wisdom and power and praise. He is the highest. He is the greatest. He is our all in all. My prayer is that the Son may be exalted among us and that we would ascribe to Him the honor due His name. I pray that we would with unveiled faces Behold the glory of God's perfect Son and be transformed from one degree of glory to another to the praise of God the Father. Amen.